0: Amen. Well, he is certainly worthy of all of the praise and all of the honor and all of the glory. Amen. 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 Well, we're going to continue worshiping here this morning by opening up the word of God to see what he has to say to us this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and get that open to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter nine, we're gonna continue working our way through the gospel of Luke here this morning. And while you're doing that, just to be completely uh, candid and honest with all of you here this morning, when I found out uh, that I was gonna be preaching through this particular passage of scripture, the transfiguration of Jesus, I was not particularly thrilled. Uh, this, uh, at first glance, this passage of scripture seems mysterious. There is a lot going on here. It leaves you with a lot of questions, really just leaves you thinking, what in the world is happening right now? But as I began to study through this passage of scripture this past week and a half, I really began to fall in love with this scripture, The parallels between our passage today and the Old Testament are truly astounding. And it really is kind of the culmination of the entire Old Testament happening right here on the top of this mountain. It's absolutely stunning. And so if you're somebody here in the room today who has trouble seeing the similarities between the Old Testament and the New Testament, maybe you have trouble believing that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament, then this passage is for you. This sermon right here is for you. And so if you're that person in the room, I want you to get your notebook out and start taking notes. Pull that iPhone out, get your notes up on there and start taking notes because this sermon is for you. I want you to fall in love with this passage of scripture. You see, this this scripture that we're in is proof that Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh, and you cannot have one without the other. They are one in the same God. Now, you might be sitting here asking the question, okay, uh, who is Yahweh? Uh, And so I've got a description of Yahweh up here on the screen Yahweh is the personal name of God that is found in the Old Testament. Yahweh uh, literally means I am, right? Like uh, Jordan read earlier in the service, uh, Moses at the burning bush, uh, he goes and he he sees God there in the bush and and God's telling him, hey, I want you to go to the people of Israel and tell them that, that I'm gonna free them from slavery. And Moses says, well, who should I say that your name is? And God says, my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. It's translated LORD in all caps. And it's used 6,500 times in the Old Testament. See, this name, Yahweh, is the name that sets the God of the Bible apart from any other false little G God that might exist out there. So if you read the Old Testament and you think to yourself, man, I just don't like the God of the Old Testament, then the reality is that you probably won't like Jesus because Jesus is Yahweh. He is the great I am. Even Jesus himself acknowledges this truth. In John eight fifty eight. he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I think God wants his people to understand exactly who Jesus is. And that is the whole point of this mountaintop experience that we're about to read through here this morning. God wants his people to know that Jesus is Yahweh. so what I wanna do this morning is I want us to work through this passage verse by verse. And I want us to hit the high points and look at those things that would cause natural questions. And my hope is that by the end of our time, here together, you would have a better understanding of who Jesus is, that he is Yahweh and Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And so with your Bibles open, let's go ahead and read through our passage here together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. Now, eight, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from Jesus, Peter said, "'Master, it is good that we are here. "'Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses "'and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. "'And as he said these things, a cloud came "'and overshadowed them, and they were afraid "'as they entered the cloud.' And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Father in heaven, God, we're so thankful for your word. God, we're thankful that you reveal yourself to us through it, and God, just pray, Lord, for our time here together, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you'd be honored and and, and blessed by this. Lord, that you would speak into our hearts. Lord, that anyone that's listening to this, anyone that's in this place here this morning would not leave without knowing exactly who Jesus was. So may your words sound forth this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I am used to my three-point sermons, but this morning I've only got one point for us, and that is this. God, Yahweh, is proving himself to be Jesus. God, Yahweh, is proving himself to be Jesus. And I think the very first thing that helps us prove this point is this mountaintop. Look back at verse 28. About eight days after these things, he took with him Peter, James and John, and went up to the mountain to pray. Now this, this mountaintop experiences significance. I think in order to better understand the significance of this New Testament mountaintop story, we have to go back to Exodus 24, to the Old Testament, where Moses himself also ascends to the top of a mountain and God tells him to go to the top of this mountain, wait there. So Moses takes Joshua, his right-hand man, and they go up to the mountain. Moses tells the elders of Israel, he says, hey, I just want you to stay down here, wait down at the bottom of this mountain until Joshua and I get back. And so here's what happens in Exodus chapter 24. is gonna be up on the screen. Then Moses went up to the mountain. Sound familiar? <laughs> and the cloud covered the mountain. Sound familiar? And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Sound familiar? And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, God calls to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Does that sound familiar? And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And so Moses entered the cloud and went up to the mountain. Now, obviously you can see the similarities here between these two passages of of scripture. And it's obvious that there's going to be a passing of the torch, so to speak, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is just once again, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, proving himself to be the same God in the New Testament, fully bodily present in Jesus and then we see Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. And the big question is why these three guys? Like why Peter, James, and John, right? Like why not Andrew or Matthew or Thomas or one of these guys? Like why, why Peter, James, and John? And when I brought this question up in sermon prep this past week, uh, one theory was brought up, well, maybe these guys are the troublemakers of the crew. Like maybe Jesus just knew that he couldn't leave these guys alone for like five minutes without them just like burning the world down, right? Like Jesus is like, you guys are coming with me because if I leave you down here, I know one of you is gonna call fire down from heaven and just destroy a village or something, right? Like he just knew that these guys were troublemakers. This would fit really well with, uh, with the Exodus story, right? Moses was up on the mountain, he came back down and the people of Israel created a golden calf. And Moses is like, I've been gone like five minutes. You've already left your God and built a golden idol? The reality is that scripture doesn't tell us why Jesus chose these three guys, it just tells us that he did. I think that we can though look back at the history of the beginning of the church and recognize these three men's significance in the foundation of the church of Christ, right? When we look at the beginning of the church, we recognize that these three guys represent the foundation of the church, the leadership of the apostles and the advancement of Jesus's kingdom mission. John in particular grasped who Jesus was better than anyone and he wrote about it in five letters that he wrote to the church that are in your Bible. See, ultimately these three guys represent you and I as followers of Jesus and proves that God, Yahweh, is proving to his church that he is Jesus. Jesus. Well, then we see the main event here, the transfiguration of Jesus in verse 29. Jesus's image was transformed. He was changed. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Jesus was changed. In verse 32, it says that the disciples saw him in his glory. They saw Jesus as he truly is, as he was revealed to them. They witnessed the revelation of Jesus in this moment. This is astounding. John, one of the three witnesses in this story, wrote the description down when he witnessed it a second time on the island of Patmos. He writes this in Revelation chapter one. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, he sees Jesus. One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like, wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am Yahweh, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the, key, the keys to death And the grave. Again, in Revelation 19, he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that nobody knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. His blood might I add. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he's got a name tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus in his glory, Amen. Can you imagine waking up to that sight? So then in verse 30, we see two guys, Moses and Elijah. And the natural question here is, why Moses and Elijah? Right? Why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham, like the father of the faith? Or why not Noah or David or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of those Old Testament heroes? Like why Moses and Elijah? See, Moses represents the law of God as the great lawgiver. He was the one that gave the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. See, where Moses brought God's law to the people of Israel, Jesus brings the very Word of God into our hearts. See, Moses simply brought the law to people's attention, but he wasn't able to change their hearts so that they could obey it. Jesus goes even further than Moses. Not only is he the embodiment of the word of God, he brings it not just to our attention, but to our hearts so that we can obey it. And Elijah, Elijah represents the prophets of God. Pastor Chad said last week, Elijah's like, what did he say? Like the big enchilada, like the prophet of prophets, like. I don't know, I can't do all that kind of stuff. He represents the prophets of God and Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies. See, the job of every prophet in the Old Testament was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, We see Jesus perfectly fulfill every single prophecy of the Messiah that was found in the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets and Jesus perfectly fulfills the law and the prophets. He even says this about himself in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Paul in Romans chapter 10 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now he's not saying that, that Christ ends the law. Jesus just said he didn't come to abolish it. We should still actively pursue holiness and character and lifestyle. But what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Basically, what he's saying is keeping the law isn't gonna save you. Believing in Jesus does because he is the law. He is the prophets. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament. And then in verse 31, we see that these two guys are having a conversation with Jesus and they're speaking with him of his departure. It says, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And again, natural question, why? Like, why are they speaking of Jesus's departure in Jerusalem? What does that even mean? What are they even talking about? I think it's interesting that the Greek word for departure here is literally translated Exodus. And so again, we're getting a glimpse of Yahweh, the God of freedom from the Exodus story. And here Jesus himself is preparing for a great Exodus for his people. If you remember, Yahweh frees his people from slavery to Egypt and leads them on this mass Exodus into the promised land. Here Jesus is talking with Moses about an even greater Exodus that's about to happen out of Jerusalem. You see, Yahweh, Jesus, the Lord, is freeing his people from slavery, not slavery to Egypt, not slavery to Rome, but from slavery to sin. And he's leading them on this mass exodus into eternal life, into the kingdom of God, where Moses led Yahweh's people out of slavery to Egypt and into the promised land. Jesus is leading his, Yahweh's people out of slavery to sin and into eternal life. Again, just one more instance of Yahweh of the Old Testament proving himself to be Jesus. So then we get to verse 33. It says, as the men were parting from Jesus, Peter says, master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. We see that Peter wants to build some tents. Why does Peter wanna build some tents? Like surely he's not advocating for camping here, right? Like that's like the worst pastime on the imaginable. Sorry if you're a camper, like that just does not sound fun, right? Like I got a house and it's comfortable. I don't, I don't wanna camp, all right? Uh, surely Peter's not advocating for camping here. So what is he saying? Well, this, this, this idea of tents is, is basically what, what he's saying is, hey, we need to build a dwelling place for God. We need to build a dwelling place for God, we see in Exodus chapter 40 that the, that, uh, the cloud, which is the kind of the manifestation of God in the Old Testament, it would go before the people of Israel. And whenever it would stop, the people of Israel would build this huge tent, and in the middle, they'd build this tabernacle. And it says that the cloud would descend on the tent, and the glory of the Lord would fill the tabernacle, this booth, this dwelling place for God. So in reality, Peter's not that far off. Peter actually knows his Bible. He knows the Exodus story. He recognizes that the Lord Yahweh is present on this mountain. His natural response is, hey, we need to build a tent, a, a dwelling place for God so that we can worship him properly. But what Peter doesn't realize is that the fullness of God, the fullness of Yahweh is presently dwelling in Jesus. We don't need to build any tents. We don't need to stay here on this mountaintop because Yahweh is fully present in Jesus and his spirit dwells in you and in me. 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that your body is a temple, a dwelling place, a tent of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Yahweh is fully present in Jesus. He is Jesus and Jesus' spirit dwells in you and in me. We don't need to build any tents. We are the tent. And then we see the cloud in verse 34 And I touched on this uh, a little bit earlier, but what is the cloud? Why a cloud and why is God speaking out of a a cloud? We we know that the cloud was the physical manifestation of the Lord Yahweh in the Old Testament. It was the the way that God was able to dwell with his people. And then we see that God speaks in verse 35 and he says, this is my son, I think one of the natural questions that comes up or one of the ones that I had when I was reading this is that if Jesus is God's son, then how can he be God also? It seems like a, a predicament we're in, right? And I think in order to better understand this, we have to look at the culture of the time. You see, culturally at this time, a son was equal to his father. And so God is saying, this is my son. This is my equal. This is my heir to the kingdom. This is me. When you see my son, you see me. It says in John five eighteen that this is the reason why the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Once again, this is Yahweh of the Old Testament saying, look, I am Jesus. And then the Lord says, this is my chosen one. Here, Yahweh is saying, this is my Messiah, my Christ, my fulfillment of the law and prophets, the one you've been waiting for. He's proclaiming the name of the Lord to be Jesus out of this cloud right now. And again, this takes us back to Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 34, it says, Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. And as the Lord Lord had commanded him and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And he passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, Jesus is our God who is merciful and gracious. Jesus is our God who is slow to anger. Jesus is our God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus is the one who through his sacrifice on the cross forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Jesus is Yahweh. So he says, listen to him. He is the law. He is the Lord. He is your God. This is God's explicit command to Peter, James, and John, the founders of the church. And ultimately, this is the command for us as well. Listen to him, obey him. Finally, we get to the end of this event in verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. In my opinion, this verse right here is like the climax of the whole thing. You see, God, God didn't leave that mountain that day. Yahweh didn't leave the mountain. On the contrary, Yahweh is still very present on the mountain with those three disciples. How? Because Yahweh is Jesus. All of the fullness of Yahweh dwells in him. The glorious transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, the Exodus, the God cloud, all of it is found in Jesus alone. Yahweh and Jesus are one in the same God, bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament in one man, Jesus Christ. No longer does the Lord dwell in an unapproachable cloud. No longer is he found on the mountaintop. No, now he dwells alongside us bodily as the God, man, Jesus, he is approachable and his spirit dwells in us. See, this transfiguration event is the culmination of this, the entire Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament found in Exodus and the Psalms and the prophets is making himself known. He's proving himself to be Jesus. And that's why Jesus is found alone here. We can't miss this. God, Yahweh of the Old Testament has proved himself to be Jesus in this event. Now, you might be sitting here wondering, okay, great. (laughs) Thank you for that information overload. Uh, This is my first time in church and I don't know what you're talking (laughs) about. What does all this mean for me? Why is all of this important? These are great questions to consider. See, if all the fullness of God is found in Jesus, and I think that there are several critical implications for us here today out of this passage. See, if Yahweh is Jesus, then that means that this book right here is true. If Yahweh is Jesus, this book is true. This is not some outdated ancient storybook. This is the very word of God. It is living, it is active. It holds Yahweh's words of life. It teaches us about who he is and what he is like. It shows us the amazing character and steadfastness of our God to patiently redeem those who are made in his image. And ultimately all of it points to Jesus from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation. It fully reveals Yahweh in Jesus. It fully reveals who our God is. And so we should wanna read this thing. Well, if the Bible is true, that also means that sin is a legitimate issue. Sin is a legitimate issue. There's a reason why Yahweh became Jesus and died on that cross. And that reason is sin. Sin is a legitimate issue Because sin is a legitimate issue, that means that death is a viable outcome. See, there's a consequence to our sin and that consequence is death. It's only by active faith in Jesus, in Yahweh, that we can escape the inevitable consequence of sin. But because we can escape it, that also means that we can have hope in Jesus, amen? He is our everything. He is our God. He is the Lord Almighty. He is Yahweh. He is the only one who can save us. There is no other name under heaven or on earth that can save you. There is no other God revealed in any other book that can save you except for the God of this Bible right here. We can have hope in Jesus because we can have hope in Jesus. That means that we can be bold in our faith. I love what 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. He says, we're not like Moses who was not bold, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the glory of of God, we're not like Moses. See, Moses came down from the mountain and the Israelites were scared because his face was glowing because he had been in the presence of God. And so he put this veil over his face to like not scare the Israelites. You see, we're bold. We can boldly take the glory of God to the people around us. See, it's tempting for us to wanna veil our faith in God. It's tempting for us to pretend sometimes like we are not Christians, but because of our hope in Jesus, we can boldly share our faith with others. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians three eighteen that we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, we're being transformed into the image of God in Jesus. That word transformed right there, it comes from the same root word that describes Jesus's transformation on the mountaintop in this passage in Luke. See, he was transformed into his glorious self and we also are being transformed into the image of the glory of God. How amazing is that? Finally, last implication we can have meaning, significance, and purpose. See, we are children of the most high God chosen to bear his image to the world around us. We are chosen to teach people how to listen and obey the voice of Jesus found in scripture. Our purpose, our significance is found in bearing his glorious image to the world around us. Well, I hope that you are encouraged here this morning. And I hope that you recognize that Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. I hope that you leave here, if you leave here with anything, I hope that you leave here with this, that you know that Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus. They aren't two different gods. They are one and the same. Jesus is Yahweh and Yahweh is Jesus. And I hope that you will go home and you open up this Bible right here to your Old Testament and that you would recognize that Jesus is leaping off of every page, every word of this book right here. If you wanna know who God is, you gotta open this thing up and you gotta read it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself in this, giving us this book right here so that we can know you, so that we know who you are and praise you and glorify you in it become transformed into your glorious image. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that you became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could know who you are. it's in Jesus' name that I pray.